Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. So what I have in my hand here is a, uh, I guess this is a popsicle stick if you want to describe it that way. Um, I'm sorry, I ate the popsicle. That's just kind of the way that goes. Um, but, you know, if I just had one popsicle stick kind of out here on its own, I'm not trying to impress you with my strength, but fairly easily I could probably break that, and most of you in the room could. Um, at least that, that's what I would hope. Uh, the thing is, though, if I take two popsicle sticks, though, and I put two of them together, um, I probably have to exert just a little bit more effort, but I could probably still break two. Most people may can, but here's what I I think I'm probably pretty sure. If I put more than probably five or six of these together and I go to try to break those, I just don't know that I'm going to be able to do that without doing some of my kung fu. I just don't think so kind of here's the point in that, and maybe you've already caught on to it, maybe not. Here's the point. There's strength. There's strength in unity. There's strength when you and I stick together, if you will. When we stand together and when we stay together. As I mentioned at the closing of last week's message, I need you and you need me. We need each other in the body of Christ. Amen. So we're here in the study of the Jailhouse Journal for the Joyous Advance of the Gospel in the book of Philippians. And Paul now moves us to tell us that if our lives are going to be really worthy of this gospel, then you and I need to take a stand, a united stand, against anything that opposes the gospel. So kind of here's where we're headed in a sentence today, uh, where we're going to kind of jump in and dive into. The focus of the message is going to kind of be this way with our sermon in a sentence. It's basically this. When we come together against that which is coming against us, we are made stronger to live a life worthy of the gospel. When we come together against that which is coming against us, you and I can be made stronger to live a life worthy of the gospel. As one, we have to stand up against those who want to take down any one of us. Here's what I want to ask you this morning. Do you really want to take a stand with the body of Jesus, and live a life worthy of the gospel? Do you want to live a life worthy of the gospel just any way? Well, the question that if I'm answering that question and I'm saying, yes, I do, then the the follow-up question is, well, really, Pastor, how do I do that? I'm so glad you asked that because the text this morning found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 will answer that question. We're going to learn this morning from this passage three principles about how to take a stand so that we can really live gospel-worthy lives. So I wonder if you would stand with me as we read God's Word. I am in Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 27. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, I want you to know there's one in the seat pocket there underneath the chairs there, hopefully. If you don't have a good copy of God's Word and you want one, you're free to take that one. It's our gift to you. Also, for those maybe who have your phones out, that's great. The text will be here behind us. We really want to honor the Word of God at FBC. Amen? Amen. So let's read. The Bible says, he says, only, that's important, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Listen, church. For it has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Would you pray with me? Jesus, when I hear your word, I sometimes realize how far from it my life can be. Today, Jesus, we want to live lives worthy of the gospel that you have brought us and saved us by. So take your word now and speak to our hearts and transform our lives to look like the gospel. And I pray it in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Here's the first thing we're kind of going to learn today, to stand up as you sit down. (laughs) To stand up, we must have a united focus. To stand up, we must have a united focus. Paul starts there, if you look there in verse 27. His first word is the word only. He's bringing us in, sharpening our focus, uniting the Philippians around the gospel And when it really comes down to it, guys, it's kind of like we preached about for the past two weeks. It really just comes down to one thing. It's all about Jesus and his gospel. That's what life is all about. In this, if we're going to have these united focus, the the first thing that kind of comes under that is our lives can maintain a single mindset. Our lives can maintain a single mindset. That's point A there, my friend. The Bible says, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, you may not know this, but the word there for conduct yourselves in a manner, that that whole is one word in the Greek. It's the word polititoistai. If you're paying attention, you heard the word politics in that word. That's because it's a political word. It comes from the word meaning city and then people. That's what politics do. They kind of help the people in the city. This is somewhat of the political word here. Paul uses it, this word only in Philippians, and he may have chosen it because of the pride the Philippians had in their Roman citizenship. Interesting. The phrase means to live really as citizens, but Paul says to live worthily as citizens. But when he says that, he doesn't mean to live as worthy citizens of Rome, but rather, pay attention, live in the Roman colony of Philippi, as citizens of your heavenly homeland. Our citizenship is really in heaven, so our mind has to be set there. Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, so the church is a colony of heaven in Philippi. So this means we should have a missionary mindset and be about the gospel while we're citizens of heaven but live here and we're trying to infiltrate the city here with the gospel. But it also means that we should take care of the welfare of the state. That means the people that make up the state of our citizenship, which would be the body of Christ. 
In modern day language, the best way that I can think about to communicate to you this way for, for my students in the house is we have to rep the homeland. That's what we have to do. Whenever someone visits a, a Christian congregation and observes our lives together as we live them, they should be reminded of Christ's kingdom. In other words, Christian churches are little outposts of the kingdom of God. As kingdom citizens, let's not live in only ways to just make the king known, but let's also remember that you and I are not really at home here. Paul says live as kingdom citizens in whatever place we may physically live, but do so in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. That word means to live consistent with God's revealed word. That includes a life that corresponds to the Bible that we profess, the Bible we preach, the Bible that we teach, the Bible that we defend. In other words, what it means is to live my life in integrity with this book. Every single facet of my life should be under the admonition of this book. We find Paul's thinking like this elsewhere. In Ephesians 4, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. He says in Colossians chapter 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all aspects. He says in 1 Thessalonians, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom. You see, as citizens of heaven, the church's greatest testimony before the world is our spiritual integrity. When we live contrary to the standards of biblical morality, when we do that, we compromise the Bible's full teaching. And listen, beloved, when you and I don't live worthy of this book, we weaken, we weaken the credibility of the gospel. It's true that God's people have always been at odds with the world. That's really because the world is at odds with God. But the world can hardly be expected to embrace a faith of whose people live contrarily to the teaching that formed it. The world's never going to embrace a Jesus that you and I embrace if we don't follow his word. Paul says, if we live contrary to the kingdom and citizenship of which we have, how can we expect others to want to be citizens? So our mindset has to be about the gospel. It has to be, my mind has to be focused on and focused in on this united message Paul moves into secondly. He says our lives now not only have to have this mindset, but we also can have a single message. He says worthy of the gospel. Now, the Bible says that the evidence of living well as citizens of heaven is exactly this, that my life is worthy of the gospel. In the original word order in the Greek, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just trying to tell you from study. It's important that you would know this. Paul says, really, in the original, it reads this way. Only worthy of the gospel of Christ live as citizens. He puts the emphasis on the right syllable. And so what you need to know is the gospel was be highlighted by the way the Philippians live out their heavenly citizenship. And the first part of Philippians, if you will remember, it's their partnership with the gospel that brought Paul joy. If you remember, his jailhouse joy rested in the fact that these soldiers, these worldly soldiers were hearing the gospel, that the encouraged brothers were sharing the gospel, and that his competitors were trying to keep him from the gospel. And Paul says earlier in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, hey, it doesn't matter, only in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. 
That's the message we have to be around if we want to live gospel-worthy lives. Hughes says this gospel-first ethic was what joined Paul to the Philippians. There have never been this congenial environment for the gospel in Philippi. It was very hostile. The little Roman city declared war on Paul and his converts from day one when they beat him and Silas. The battle was cosmic. Those believers as citizens of heaven and subject of the Lord were engaged in mortal combat. But yet their weapons were the good news of Jesus Christ. In exhorting the church to this end, there is an implicit encouragement. In other words, if I'm to be about this message, if my focus is to be about this message, then it means then that this message has really changed me. So it would do no good to tell them to live a life worthy of the gospel if they hadn't experienced the salvation that it brings. Thus, that tells me this, that you and I have the power within us to do exactly what God wants us to do, to live worthy of the gospel. We don't have to muster it up. It's because Jesus is in us. And listen to me, Jesus wants to live through you sharing the gospel with others. So... We have to live in a way that's consistent with the gospel. To stand up, Paul says, we must have a unified focus on a mindset and message of the gospel. What else does Paul say? Well, that's good. He says, secondly, to stand up, we must have a unified front. Not just a unified focus, but a united front. The reason Paul gives this for this is given next. Paul says this. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see or I will hear. Now, Paul is writing in light of two things. One is this. He's about to send Timothy to learn of their affairs. In chapter 2, verse 19, you will see that. Paul, obviously, is going to what? Come after the letter. So he's like, Paul says, hey, I intend to come to you. But whether I hear of you or I come to you, I need to know that you're living these lives about the gospel. He says, whether I'm absent or whether I hear about your affairs. So how's he going to do that? Well, Timothy's going to come and bring him good news, or he's actually going to go there. Either which way, Paul wants to hear that the Philippians are living worthily of the gospel of Christ. Well, how are they going to do that? Well, Paul says, hey, I want you to know, first of all, we can be as disciplined as soldiers. We can be as disciplined as soldiers because he says there, that I will hear that you are standing firm. Did you see that in your text? Standing firm. That refers to steadfastly holding one's ground, regardless of danger or opposition. It was a word used of soldiers who defended their post at all costs, even to the point of sacrificing their own lives. Figuratively, it refers to holding fast to your beliefs, holding fast to your principles, holding fast to your convictions without compromise, regardless of what it may cost you. Because you have to remember the gospel is not about you. Being firmly fixed in matters of biblical truth and holy living is included in standing firm. But standing firm is also used both positively and negatively. It it means this, it means to stand for God, but to stand against Satan. To stand for truth, but against falsehood. To stand for righteousness, but stand against sin. Perhaps some of you have read about the famous Battle of Thermopylae or saw one of the movies about it. In 400 BC, an alliance of Greek city-states led by King Leonidas of Sparta fought against the mighty Persian army. The battle took place at the Pass of Thermopylae in central Greece vastly outnumbered the Greeks held back the Persians for three days 
in one of the history's most famous last stands. A small force led by King Leonidas, including his famous group of 300 Spartans, blocked the only road through which the massive army of Persia's Xerxes the Great could pass. And Paul is using that language here. It's like the Philippian congregation may have felt vastly outnumbered, but they were called to stand courageously against the hostile forces. And they were to do that under the kingship of Jesus, who had already won the battle. So Paul says, listen, if you're going to stand up and have a united front, you have to be as disciplined as soldiers. But then he says, we can be devoted to sharing. We can be devoted to sharing because he says they're standing firm in one spirit verse 27, and with one mind. The idea of unity continues to emerge. Standing firm as united front matters, but the church also must be united in this devotion to the mutual sharing of convictions and responsibilities in one mind with one spirit. Many interpreters, as I studied, have argued that the phrase in one spirit refers to the Holy Spirit. Paul elsewhere has made it clear that we're placed in the body through the Spirit and that we preserve unity through the Spirit of God. But the context of this present passage pushes on me to say that Paul is speaking of believers' attitudes and seems to indicate that he's speaking of the human spirit here. He says there, press on with one spirit and then one mind. The word mind is often translated by the word soul. But here, mind seems more appropriate because as just noted, he's speaking of their personal attitudes and their perspectives with one mind and one spirit refers to the experience of unity, the experience of harmony, the the call to interdependence. You see, from its inception, the church was with one spirit and one mind because a few days after Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we read these familiar words. All those who believed were together. And had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. See, earlier in the letter, Paul commends the Philippians for their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Later, he says, if there's any encouragement... If there is encouragement and consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection, compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul later in the book of Philippians says, hey, Eutyche and Syndyche, I want you guys to live together in harmony of the Lord because they had shared the struggle and the cause of the gospel. See, Paul desired to see spiritual things working out in practical ways in loving care and ministry. The functioning unity of the church was one of Paul's great passions. He reminded the believers in Rome to use their spiritual gifts, and he did so by talking about a human body and how we're all a part of one body and we need each other. Paul says in 1 Corinthians to a church that was factitious, a church that kind of separated a little bit. He says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you might be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. You see, if you and I are going to stand and make it about the gospel, we have to be to share, devoted to sharing all that we are in Christ with each other. So then Paul says, hey, listen, we can be as disciplined as soldiers. We have to be devoted to sharing. But then he says, we can be as determined as sports persons. 
We can be this determined as sports persons because Paul says this. He says, I hear that you're standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving together. Did you see that? That word can be translated working, continuing, laboring. The word in the Greek is, listen, it's synathleo. Did you hear that word athleo? That's where we get our word athlete from. Paul shifts to the realm of athletics, a world with which his audience was very familiar. Because Melik says this, he says, if the Roman military element in Paul's congregation appreciated the military associations with the word standing firm, then his Greek population would identify with the necessity as contending as one man as was demanded in athletic games. Paul here stresses the, the positive relationship that believers have with each other. More than one athletic team with many outstanding players has failed to win a championship because just one of those players concentrated on their own success more than the team's. See, a less talented team can win against one that's more talented because the weaker team works more effectively together toward a common objective. A player with outstanding talent may be temporarily sidelined or even put off the team because as impressive as he may be, he does the team more, what, harm than good. Paul says we need to strive together. That means we have to play together as a team to advance the ball of the gospel of Jesus. As we said, first of all, we come together. When we come together against that which is coming against us, we are made stronger to live life worthy of the gospel. In other words, standing together not only advances the faith, but it halts the progress of whatever's coming against us. Now, many commentators make a connection, not only with the Atlantic Games with this verse, but also with the gladiator arena. It's like Paul's envisioning the Christians there in Philippi in an arena of faith with himself there as a part of the contest. Others believe it refers to a wrestling team. And if you follow MMA or that doesn't matter to you, those in the audience who do, you would know that there's MMA teams where, where actually five or six people do mixed martial arts against other five or six teams. Maybe that's what Paul is referring to. We would battle in a united front is the point. Having a, a contemporary sport, you might think about football if you don't think MMA. Think about those linemen, they block side by side for the same purpose. In team sports, everybody has to do their part. And so it is with the church. We have to work side by side, working, contending, laboring together for the advancement of the gospel. So why do we do this? Well, Paul tells us why. Because it's interesting, Paul uses a kind of unfamiliar way to say this. He says, with one mind striving together, watch. For the faith of the gospel. That sounds very odd. Paul uses an unusual expression for the faith of the gospel. For those of you who are English teachers, and, and some of you are in the room, you will appreciate this. That is an appositional genitive. In other words, it should be better translated this way. The faith that is the gospel. Or the faith that is contained in the gospel. As always, the gospel is the urgency. It turns out that their progress in joining the faith is directly related to contending side by side for the faith, faith of the gospel in light of current opposition. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying, listen, we have to have this united front. We have to be disciplined as soldiers. We have to be devoted to sharing with each other. And then what? We have to be as committed as athletes are about winning the goal. But then Paul says this. With all that happened, and if we do all that, we can be deepened in security. That is the last thing he says. We can be deepened 
and security. Because Paul then moves in verse 28. He says, hey, if you've got all this together, then in no way should you be alarmed by your opponents. In no way should you be alarmed by your opponents. Now that verb is only used here in the New Testament. The King James Version kind of renders it this way, that you wouldn't be terrified by your opponents. It's not that serious, but it is a fearful concern. It was used of a startled horse, a horse that got kind of scared because of something perfectly harmless, like a, like a mosquito kind of landing on a horse and it just startles it and it just takes off. It's like, hey, listen, you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because even though they knew there in Philippi, they had good human reason to be terrified of possible beatings. They too themselves may be imprisoned, just like Paul. Some of them may be executed because of the opponents of the gospel. Maybe their friends would turn on them. Maybe their families would turn against them. Maybe their neighbors would sell them out. Maybe people would disown them. But what Paul says, hey, don't be alarmed. In other words, don't panic. Keep your head. You are a citizen of heaven and your God is in control. Don't be intimidated by a lost world. E. Stanley Jones wrote this. He said, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But rather they said, look what has come to the world. They saw not the merely ruin of the world, but the resources for the reconstruction of the world. They saw not merely that sin did abound, but that grace did abound much more. On that assurance, the pivot of history swung from blank despair, loss of moral nerve and fatalism, and it swung to faith and confidence that at last sin had met its match, that something new had come into the world. And listen, my beloved sisters, however the serious conflict must be, you and I must not be alarmed because the very fact that we are being attacked because of the gospel, Paul says, is a sign. He says there, if you look with me, he says, don't be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign, a sign of destruction for them, verse 28, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Well, what is it a sign of, Paul? Well, he says it's a sign, first of all, of their destruction. It's a sign of their destruction. Paul says that, hey, this, when you are persecuted, when you're coming up against, it's actually a sign of those coming against you that their destruction is nigh. It's the same language that's used in 2 Thessalonians when Paul says this, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance of faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. He says there, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. You have to know this, that when people come against you because you're standing for the gospel, it is a sign of their destruction. It's not a sign of yours. It's a sign of theirs. It is a proof positive that what Jesus said would happen is going to happen. Now listen, you have to know that I would agree that it may not mean that they'll be really aware of that. It doesn't mean that they're going to go around acknowledging, well, yeah, judgment of God's coming on me. But it nevertheless is a sign of their destruction. As believers, we have to be reminded of D.A. Carson's words on this. He says this, he says, your changing character, your united stand in the defense of the gospel, 
Your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition that you must endure constitutes a sign. And that sign speaks volumes both to the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition, but it's a sign of assurance that believers really are the people of God and will ultimately be saved. You see, when we see and experience the opposition, Paul says, it's a sign of their destruction. They're coming against the gospel. They're coming against Christ in us. And though that destruction for them ultimately awaits, Paul says it's also a sign of our deliverance. It's not just a sign of their destruction. It's a sign of our deliverance. He says, because, but for us, for salvation. And that too is from God. Hostility, the opponents of the gospel, persecution for the sake of Christ. If you are being persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ, can I just give you some good news today? It is a sign of your salvation. Persecution that tends to be discouraging to believers should produce confidence and joy because it shows that you and I are truly saved. Paul was honored, listen to this language, Paul was honored to bear on his body the brand marks of Jesus. We always win in Jesus. As the church struggles to fulfill its divine mission, it can never be intimidated either by unbelieving opponents in the world or by critics within its own ranks. Both the opponent's destruction and its salvation are divinely secured because the outcomes are, the text said, both from God. Did you hear that? Both are from God. Let me encourage you to speak the gospel fearlessly and be prepared for conflict when you do. While some may be drawn to the grace of Jesus, others may reject it and deeply oppose you. But we shouldn't be surprised by the hate. We shouldn't be surprised by the conflict. We shouldn't be surprised by the persecution. Now, you and I don't go looking for it, and we shouldn't bring it upon ourselves. But if we suffer and we're out there, listen, that's a sign that Jesus ultimately is reigning and ruling and will ultimately save us. But you and I can't do it alone. We have to do it together. It reminds me of a story I read back in 1984. Madai Dabaj was imprisoned by the government of Iran on charges of apostasy for converting from Islam to Christianity. Madai languished in prison for 10 years until his his case was tried in 1994. Some of his last lines of his written defense read this. Listen, here's a man who knows he will be executed because of his faith in Jesus. And here's what he says. Jesus Christ is our Savior and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all of his words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I've committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with him. Therefore, I'm not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord. Now, Madai Debaiz was sentenced to execution, but he was released under pressure from the U.S. State Department. But after he was released, he was murdered and found in Tehran Park. And he was the third Christian to to be killed after being released from prison. Dubai's measured conduct as he calmly stood his ground for the gospel was a sure sign of his enemy's coming judgment, but also of his certain salvation. And it does so for everybody who knows the Lord Jesus, that everybody can see when persecution happens, 
People see their destruction, and we see our deliverance. Listen, to stand up. We must have a united, a united front and to stand up with our brothers and sisters, striving and sharing together, as this will allow us greater security to lay down our own lives. If necessary, if necessary, you and I may be called to sacrifice our lives for Jesus right here in America. I hope you're ready for that. I hope you understand that. Well, it, it's not convenient to suffer for Jesus. It's hardly convenient to come to church when we don't want to. But I'm telling you, change is coming to America, and you need to be prepared. And we have to stand up. And here's the last thing I want to encourage you with. To stand up, we must also have a unified faithfulness. Have to have a unified faithfulness. Paul says if we stand, if we have this unified focus, and we have this unified front, you are guaranteed that you are going to suffer. Well, but I don't stand here telling you I've suffered for Jesus. I don't stand here claiming that. I'm just telling you, this is something the church doesn't like to talk about. This is something the church has to talk about. See, Jesus talked about it a lot, and he prepared his disciples to suffer. One of the things I don't think we do as pastors enough is prepare our church to suffer. I don't think we do that. Paul knew all too well the realities of this. We must be united in faithfulness and follow no matter the cost. And when we do that, we will see that there, first of all, is a plan for suffering. There's a plan for suffering. He says there, for to you, listen to me, listen to these words. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake. It's, it's been grace to you. Not only to believe, but it has been granted that you and I will suffer for his sake. There's a plan for suffering. There are two things the believer has been granted. There's two things the believer has been graced with. The first thing is, is you and I have been granted to believe. That is salvation through grace, the forgiveness of sins because of what Christ has done. The Bible says in Ephesians, for by grace we have been saved. We have been given this. We've been graced salvation because of Jesus. We all like that one. We're all like, yes, thank you, Jesus. We're praising God this morning, singing him. Thank you, Lord. Bless me, Lord. Amen, right? It's all good. But I don't know that we sing many songs. Slay me, Jesus. I'll suffer for you, Jesus. Bring me more of that, Jesus. But he says that's what we've been granted. That's a gift. And that's not appealing to us. Nevertheless, it's an integral part of divine grace. Paul reminded, reminded Timothy. He says, listen, Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. During his earthly ministry, Jesus made it clear to everyone who followed him, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The point is to suffer for Christ's sake. Not only is it a command, but listen, beloved, we have to change the language. It's a privilege Paul never forgot the Lord's prediction through Ananias that he would be a chosen instrument to bear his name before Gentiles and the sons of Israel and that he must suffer for Jesus' sake. Paul goes on to say, hey, listen, I know in whom I believe and I've suffered the loss of all things to do what? To know the fellowship of his sufferings. Believers, listen to me. I need you to understand today and know the key for us is to return to Paul's emphasis. You have to understand this. My suffering, we tend to focus on the suffering, and Paul says, I tend to focus on Jesus. And that is the key to get through any suffering. You focus on Jesus and not your suffering. Through the death on a cross, Jesus not only saved us, 
but he modeled for God's way of dealing with those who would oppose him by loving them to death. But how exactly is suffering for Christ a gift of grace? Well, according to the previous verse, it provides a sense of assurance that I belong to Jesus. Suffering brings me closer to Jesus. Paul says this attitude appears throughout the book of Acts. He says that in the apostles, they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted to be worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. When did they do that? Right after they had been beaten. They just didn't tolerate suffering. They rejoiced in it. They saw it as a gift. You see, you and I will have special intimacy with Jesus as we identify with him through courageous Christmas witness. Suffering for the sake of the mission doesn't mean that Jesus is abandoning you. When you and I suffer for following him, it actually means it's a sign that he's with you. Jesus calls us to obey him, and that will lead to various degrees of suffering. You may face it in a mild form, like just being mocked, insulted, or ignored. You may face severe opposition, like being tied up by Islamic, Islamic extremists. But in any and every situation, see your suffering as a privilege. You and I get to suffer for his name. Karl Barth said it this way. The grace of being permitted to believe in Christ is surpassed by the grace of being permitted to suffer for Christ. The fellowship of Christ's suffering moves the believer beyond the role of being beneficiary of Christ's death to now a sharer in his sufferings. The suffering that comes to a Christian, listen to me here today. The suffering that comes to a Christian is not a sign of God's neglect, but rather a proof of his grace at work in your life. This is God's plan for suffering. Somehow suffering makes me more like Jesus. And that has been God's plan from the day you were saved. We can't have one without the other. But see, Paul goes on to say there's a plan for suffering. But lastly, he says, hey, listen, there are also partners in suffering. There's partners in struggling. There's partners in struggling. He says there in verse 30, he says, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. The conflict which you saw in me refers to the hostile opposition he faced him and Silas when they were beaten. Now here to be in me refers, of course, to his, his present imprisonment in Rome. But the word there, he says, experiencing the same conflict you saw in me is a poor translation because the word actually means agony. It was a term representing the painful effort extended by athletes in the arena of the stadium. It was where the runners, wrestlers, and boxers suffered great pain in competitions. It's where athletes pushed their bodies beyond their limits. Later, the word here for agony is the word which we use to describe our marathons today. It's the same word. This grueling sense of you hit a wall and you've got to push through it and leave your body to just do what it does, to feel the pain, to feel the burn. Paul says, listen to me, that same burn, that same agony that you saw in me and heard in me, listen, I am in this with you because you have partners in the body of Christ. You're not going to do this alone. I remember reading a story of a missionary friend, and I'm not trying to brag on you guys, but I, I, I'm not trying to brag to you or boast to you, but I'm telling you. My wife and I had to make the decision that it was going to be all about Jesus or it wasn't going to be about anything. 
We surrendered our lives to go share the gospel in a Muslim country where we knew the cost. And I'm telling you today, we would still be there giving our lives if necessary for the gospel. But when I read stories like this, it brings me to my knee in deep humility, and I feel so ashamed of my life. But before missionary Karen Watson went to Iraq, she had counted the cost. She left a letter with her pastor that said this, you will only read this letter if I have died. Not long after that, she was martyred. Her letter included gracious words to her family and friends. And this is the simple summary of what she said. These are her words. When I left, to obey was my objective and to suffer was expected. John Wesley, great preacher, brought a great awakening to America was riding on his horse once when it dawned to him that he had not been persecuted for three days. He got off his horse and got down on his knees and said, God, maybe I've sinned against you or maybe I've been disobedient. Just then a man on the other side of the road recognized him and threw a huge rock at him. It bounced off the road just missing Wesley's head. He then leapt to his feet and he said, thanks be to God, everything's all right, I still have God's presence with me. How long has it been since you've been persecuted? Do you say, God, am I in sin because I'm not being persecuted? That is a far different way to look at life. And brothers and sisters, I am not there yet, but I want the gospel to so saturate me that that's my outlook. Oh God, I must be in sin because I haven't been persecuted. That's what the gospel-worthy life looks like. Full citizenship involves the grace of believing and the grace of suffering together in the cause of Christ. Now let us live in a, a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Jeremy, I wonder if you guys would come this morning. You see, when we come together against that which is coming against us, we're made stronger to live a life worthy of the gospel. To stand and live lives worthy of the gospel, we have to have a united focus, a united front, and unified faithfulness. I remember reading the story about some elderly missionaries because I do a lot of reading about missionaries. They've been working in Africa for years back when Teddy Roosevelt was the president of the United States. These missionaries were retiring from their work in Africa and they were going to go to New York to kind of spend the rest of their days. A lot of times people in ministry have no pensions. Their, their health, especially for missionaries in those companies, countries was broken and they were defeated, discouraged, and afraid. They went down to the wharf to board the ship and they discovered that their, to their amazement that they happened to be on the same ship with Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from Africa from a big game hunt. The missionaries went aboard the ship and no one paid any attention to them. They watched all the tremendous fanfare for the president, how everyone was making such a fuss over that famous man. As the ship moved across the ocean, the couple became more and more discouraged, especially the man. He said to his wife, he said, honey, something is wrong. We've given our lives in faithful service to God in Africa all these years, and no one cares a thing about us. I mean, here's a man, he's a president, but we're children of God, and no one even gives two hoots about us. So I said, hey, honey, don't worry about all that. You shouldn't feel that way. Don't get bitter about this. He's like, I can't help it. I just can't help it. It isn't right. I mean, if God is running the world, why does he permit such injustice? The ship approached the American shore and his spirit became more and more depressed. He said, 
I bet, I bet this, sweetheart, when we get to New York, there'll be another band and there'll be fanfare about this president's arrival, but no one will be there to meet us. Sure enough, when they arrived, the ship docked and a band was waiting to greet the president. The mayor of New York was there and other dignitaries. And this missionary couple quietly slipped off the ship. They found a cheap place to live on the east side of New York, hoping that they could just spend their days there. The first night in that new place to live, the man's spirit was broken and he cried, I can't take it. God is not treating us fairly. And his wife tried to encourage him and she suggested that he go to the bedroom and tell God about the whole thing. So he went in and about an hour later, he came out again and his face was different. And his wife noticed it. She said, dear, tell me about what happened. I mean, everything is different. You feel better, don't you? The man said, well, the Lord settled it with me. Well, the wife said, hey, well, what did he tell you? He said, man, I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, this is not fair. We've given our lives. We've lived lives worthy of your gospel. We've given our blood and our sweat and our tears in Africa. We have no health and we have no place to go. And I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive that tremendous welcome and we got nothing. And I expect bitterness about the homecoming we received and nobody welcomed us. Nobody saw us come home. And he said this, he said, you know, when I finished, it seemed as if the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and he simply said to me, you're not home yet. Can I tell you, beloved, you're not home yet. Heaven's our home. And until then, you might not be noticed. You might not get special treatment. You might get taken advantage of. You may actually lose your life. But can I challenge you, until you get there, would you live a life worthy of this gospel? This gospel is not about your happiness. This is not about your best life now and how you can be happy. That is not the gospel. The gospel demands that we die to ourselves to put the needs of others first. And oftentimes that means we have to die, literally. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're living a life that's worthy of the gospel, but can I tell you this today? In my heart of hearts, I need you to understand the blessing that Jesus has. If you are not living a life worthy of the gospel today, can I tell you today, Jesus is not disappointed and he's not distanced himself from you. Jesus is standing here today to tell you that he loves you and he longs to embrace you as you choose to move forward and trying to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Jesus has grace. He doesn't have judgment for you. He loves you and will lead you to live this kind of a life. So I wonder, could we stand together? The invitation is simple this morning, Jeremy. Maybe you're within the sound of my voice and simply put, you've never received the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Can I challenge you today that today would be a great day to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus? Today would be a great day to trust that Jesus died and was buried and raised to give you forgiveness and to give you hope. But if that's maybe not you here today, that's okay. We'll continue to pray for you. But I want to challenge you to come. But maybe you're just here today and maybe the Lord's convicted your heart. Maybe the Holy Spirit's challenged you to say, hey, listen, I need to live a life more worthy. And you want to pray about that. We'll be here to receive you. 
Maybe this morning during prayer time, there was something that said, and you want to pray about a loved one, you want to pray about your own health, I'll be here to receive you. And if any of my deacons are in the room and their wives, they'd love to come forward. That would be amazing. Let me pray for you and let's sing and you come. So Jesus, today I pray that your spirit is moving to draw us near, to live lives worthy of the gospel. We need you. I ask your spirit to do a great work right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You come.